Hey, what is up, everyone? Welcome to the Crack House Chronicles. I am Donnie, your host, and with me is a modern-day warrior of Mean Mean Stride. It's Dale. What's up, man? What's going on, brother? How are you doing today? Uh, man, I'm great. Doing a Crack House thing, doing another episode. It's good to be back. It's been a few days. Yeah, we're running a little bit behind. I had a out-of-town trip with the Boy Scouts. We've done a canoe trip. Went down the river. How's that? A little wet, maybe? It was wet around the edges. <laughs> well, that's good. I guess yeah. you had fun there, right? Oh, yeah. We had a great time, man. Yeah, that's, what, that's what it's all about. Oh, yeah. It's all about the boys. That's for sure. Dale, well, I'm going to get into this episode, bud. And we've done an episode before on a disappearance, but this one takes the cake. Yeah. This is a... I don't know, man. This is... There, there are so many theories, and I don't know if theories or rumors or, man, I don't know, but we're going to get into it, and this is the disappearance of the Sodder children. And Dale, this, all this happened on Christmas Eve, on December the 24th, 1945. So we're looking, you know, this was a long time ago. Yeah, it was a few years back. Yeah, and, and technology was different. You know, the way of life was different, and this happened in Fayetteville, West Virginia, and it's a the rural part of West Virginia. So, you know, things were different. This was a coal mining area, and it was it wasn't a big town, right? Yeah, it was it was very rural. Still, pretty small town, I believe. Yeah, and at this time, a fire destroyed the solder home, and like I said, this was uh, Fayetteville, West Virginia. And at the time, it was occupied by George Sodder and his wife, Jenny, and nine of their ten children. And the one of the children, I think the second to oldest, was in the Army. He was out of town. He was <clears throat> he was uh, serving his uh, country. Yeah, he's off to war, uh, World War II. Yeah. All right. During the fire, George and Jenny and four of the nine children escaped. The bodies of the other five children have never been found that's just crazy isn't it man yeah and we're gonna get into some of the theories and things of why they were never found and and some of the things that were found and some of the things that weren't found but the solders believed for the rest of their lives that the five children survived you know they were they were staying outside cold cold winter night west virginia watching their house go up in flames quickly yeah very quickly no help and the Sodders never rebuilt their house. Instead, of they converted the site into a memorial garden for their lost children. And in the 1950s, as they came to doubt the children had perished, they put up a billboard. And this was a big sign that was along State Route 16. And it had pictures of the five children, and they were offering a reward for information that would bring some kind of closure to this case. And it remained up for almost 40 years after Jenny's death in 1989. Yep, finally took it down then. Yeah, and it it stayed up so long that the photos got grainy. The message at the bottom got grainy. So in support of their belief that the children survived, the Sodders have pointed to a number of unusual circumstances before and during the fire. George even disputed the fire department's finding that the, that the blaze was an electrical in origin, noting that he had recently had the house rewired and inspected by the power company. Yeah, and he bought his wife a new stove or something and had it rewired just to make sure it was going to be safe. Yeah, right? everything was going to be safe. Right. So that was one of the speculations on this. Uh, he and his wife suspected arson, leading to theories that the children had been taken by the Sicilian Mafia perhaps in retaliation for George's outspoken criticism of Benito Mussolini and the fascist government of his native Italy. Yeah, he wasn't one to hide his feelings about how he felt about anything, was he? No, we're covering a broad spectrum of time right now, but we're going to fill in all these gaps with different information of why and who and how here. All right. We're going to get into the state and federal efforts to investigate the case further in the 1950s yielded no information, Dale. The family did, however, later receive what may have been a picture of one of the boys as an adult 
during the 1960s. Their one surviving daughter, along with their grandchildren, have continued to publicize the case even today in the media and online. All right, let's give a little background here. George Sauter, the dad, he was born Giorgio Sodu. Sound good to me. Yeah, in <laughs> Tula, Sardinia, Italy in 1895. And he came to the United States when he was 13 with his older brother. But when they got to customs in Ellis Island, his brother went back. Yeah, he decided he was just going home. He never did. Did you ever find his name? I couldn't find I him. couldn't find his name, and I don't know why he went back, and I've never found any information why George came over here. Right. I don't I don't know. But to come here at 13 and stay by himself and go yeah. to work, I guess. Yeah, go to work. And for the rest of George's life, he became known as George Sauter. Yeah, he became George Sauter. And he would not talk about much, much about why he left his homeland of Italy. George eventually found work with the railroads. He done odd jobs. He carried water and different supplies to the workers. And after a few years, he found more permanent work in Smithers, West Virginia as a driver. Right. And after that, he became owner of his own trucking company. Uh, at first, hauling field dirt to construction sites and later hauling coal that was mined in the region. Now, his wife, Jenny, she was Jenny... Cipriani. Cipriani. Thank you for pointing that out. I got you, buddy. No, thank you for having my back. <laughs> she was a storekeeper's daughter, and she had also came to the United States from Italy in her childhood, but she was a lot younger when she moved here with her family. I think she was like two or three years old. I think so. Yeah. Uh, the couple settled in outside nearby Fayetteville, West Virginia. It had a large population of Italian immigrants. They lived in a two-story timber frame house about two miles north of the town of Fayetteville. In 1923, they had the first of their 10 children. A lot of kids, man. George's business prospered, and they actually became one of the most respected middle-class families around. George, he had a strong opinion on different subjects. I mean, he was very outspoken as far as political and different things, and he... He would not shy about expressing them, Dale. Sometimes even alienating people. Yeah, he didn't mind. He, he didn't care what you thought or he just going to tell you what he thought. Yeah, and, and one of his oppositions was to Italian dictator Benito Mussolini. And he had very ar- strong arguments against him. Yeah, he didn't care for him at all. And he would even get in arguments with other members of the immigrant Italian community there. Yeah, a lot of those guys still had close ties with the homeland, so I'm sure they were... Um, Mussolini supporters. Oh, yeah. So it, this was a pretty big conflict with George right here. Uh, the last of the Sauter children, Sylvia, was born in 1943. And by that time, their second oldest son, like we said, had left to serve in the military during World War II. Yeah, it was Joe, right? The following year, Mussolini was executed. But George's criticism of the late dictator had left some hard feelings. Even in October 1945, a visiting insurance salesman came out to George and Jenny's house. Him and George got into an argument, and George wouldn't take out any insurance, and even the salesman even warned George that his house would go up in smoke and your children were going to be destroyed. Yep, all because of the dirty remarks you have made of Mussolini. Yeah, and George recounted this later after everything was said and done. So It's kind of odd. but Yeah, it's very, very odd. Another visitor to the house who was seeking work took the occasion to go around the house and even warned George that a pair of fuse boxes would cause a fire someday. And George, you know, he, he was kind of, I don't know, weirded out by this. And since he had, had just had the house rewired, and like Dale said, an electric stove was installed, the local electric company had said afterwards that it was safe. Just kind of odd. I don't. I don't. This dude's a little fishy to me, anyway. I mean, he's come up asking for work, and then he's starting walking around the house checking out your fuse boxes. Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of fishy stuff going on in this story. And in the weeks before Christmas that year, his older sons had noticed a strange car parked along the main highway through town, and the occupants of this car were watching the younger Solder children as they returned from school. 
We're going to get into the Christmas Eve 1945 house fire, Dale. Already. All right. The Sauter family, they celebrated <clears throat> on Christmas Eve 1945. Marion, the oldest daughter, had been working at a dime store in downtown Fayetteville, and she was she had surprised three of her younger sisters, Martha, who was 12, Jenny, 8, and Betty, 5, with new toys she had bought them at their, at her store as gifts. The younger, they, them girls were excited, and they asked their mother if they could stay up past their bedtime, you know, to play with their toys, and, you know, since it was Christmas. Did, oh, yeah, I'm sure they was really excited. They probably didn't get a whole lot of anything, being 10 kids in the house, and yeah, they it was were, probably pretty nice of Marion, yeah. So, yeah, they they asked if they could stay up past their bedtime, and, you know, Jenny told them they could stay up later, as long as the two boy, the older boys who were still awake. Um uh, 14-year-old Maurice and his 9-year-old brother, Louis. And as long as these two boys remember to put the cows in and feed the chickens before going to the bed themselves. Her husband, George, and the two oldest boys, John, 23, and George, Jr., 16, they spent all day working with their father. They were already asleep. They were out. Yeah. And I'm sure these guys, they they worked long days. Oh, yeah. Especially hauling coal. And after reminding the children of those remaining chores, she took Sylvia, who was two at the time, upstairs with her, and they went to bed together. All right. After everybody was in bed, about 12.30 a.m., this was on actually on Christmas Day morning, the phone rang. Middle of the night. Jenny woke up and went downstairs and answered it. Yeah, they didn't have cell phones back then. You could pick up the phone beside your bed. She had to actually go downstairs and answer the phone. And on the phone was a woman's voice she didn't recognize. Asking for a name she was not familiar with. And she also heard the sound of laughter and clinking glasses in the background. I feel like somebody having a party. Oh, Christmas yeah. Eve party there. Yeah, they were, they were getting... <laughs> get the feeling good. Holiday spirit. Oh, yeah. She told the caller she had reached the wrong number, later recalling the woman's weird laugh. She hung up and went to bed. As she did, she noticed that the lights were still on and the curtains were not drawn. So, I don't know if the kids were just wore out from playing their toys and they probably forgot their chores of, you know, or what they promised their mom of, you know, telling them they would turn off the lights before they went to bed. Marion had fallen asleep on the living room couch. This was the one who brought the toys home to the girls. Right, yeah. Jenny went down to check out what was going on, wondering why the lights were still on everything, and that's when she found Marion sleeping on the couch. Yeah. And about 1 a.m., Jenny was awakened by a sound, by the sound of an object hitting the house roof with a loud bang and then a rolling noise, like something had landed on the roof and rolling down the house. And they had a tin roof. So I imagine, Dale, it was pretty loud. Right. Now, when she went down there and seen Marion on the couch, she didn't check on other kids. Did she? she just locked up the house and closed the curtains and then she just went back to bed right yeah okay this is right before she heard the stuff on the roof well it was about an hour later i guess that is correct okay after hearing no further noise she went back to sleep like dale said and after about a half hour she woke up again smelling smoke when she got up again she found that the room george used for his office was on fire in and around the telephone line and fuse box she woke him up and in turn Woke up her older sons. Now, did you ever find out if this the, is the office on the ground floor or is it upstairs? I do not know. Okay, I couldn't find that. I was just wondering. No, I know their bedroom was on the ground floor. Right. And there were two bedrooms upstairs that the kids shared. So I don't know if it was like a, you know, like a little split level. Where yeah, the, right. Because it said, you know, it said that uh, Sylvia went upstairs to bed. Yeah, that's why I was like wondering. Now, wait a minute, because one says some places you find it says they're on the ground floor. So I was like, is the office on the ground floor with them? And then, and then it says that she was upstairs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I don't know if the. I'm gonna assume that the office was on the ground floor. Okay. Uh, because you know she got out of bed and noticed that's where the fire was. Right. So that's where I'm gonna I'm gonna think that the the office was and that's where she noticed the fire coming from first both parents and four children marion sylvia john and george jr escaped the house 
And Dale, they frankly yelled to the children upstairs, but heard no response, nothing from anyone upstairs. They could not go up there because the stairway itself was already on fire. It was a blaze. Okay, so if that was the thing, then you would know that uh, the fire is downstairs, right? Yeah. Because it's not going to burn. Well, it would burn down, but more likely just start in the office and then burn up the stairs. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. Sorry, I'm trying to piece this together in my own head. That's all right. <laughs> all right. John Sauter said his first in his first police interview after the fire that he went up to the attic to alert the siblings sleeping there and later changed the story to say that he only called up there and did not actually see them so that's you know it's a little so nobody knows for sure if those kids are in that room or not yeah nobody knows okay at all because they didn't hear anything coming out right, of there no noise no nobody seen anything they just yelled for them and and you would think if if something was on fire you would you'd hear something you know kids i don't know if, i don't know how sound kids sleep right through something like that. I don't I don't know. Especially if it started downstairs. Yeah. And, and you're running and screaming. But you'd think the yelling and screaming would, would wake up, up wake up one of the kids. Yeah. Especially for five. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. All right. Efforts to find aid and rescue, the children were unexpectedly complicated. The phones didn't work. So Marion ran to the neighbor to call the fire department. A driver on the nearby road had also seen the flames and called a nearby tavern. And they could not reach the operator. No one could reach an operator because the phones there, they turned out to be broken. Either the neighbor or the passing motors were eventually successful in reaching the fire department from another phone in the center of town. All right. Like I say, they, this family, they were ripped up in the middle of the night and they ran outside. George was barefoot. Right. He even climbed the wall and broke into an attic window, cutting his arm in the process. He and his sons intended to use a ladder to the attic to rescue the children. It was not in his usual spot against the house. Yeah, usually just left it leaning up against the house there in that one spot, but it wasn't, one, no, wasn't there when he went No, it was out. not there. Missing. And he got a, had the water barrel there, and he could not, it could be used to extinguish the fire because it was frozen solid. That's how cold it was. Mm. That water barrel was frozen solid. George even tried to pull both of his trucks. He had two work trucks that he used to haul coal with in his business. Pull them up to the house to climb on them to get in the attic window. But get this deal, neither one of them would crank. This is just crazy. That's and, like four strikes right off the bat. And both of those vehicles, both those trucks worked perfectly the, pre- the previous day. That's fishy, man. Yeah. I mean, everything he was plus, trying. Plus the, the phone worked. 12.30 for a prank call, but at 1.30, nobody's phone works. Nobody was working. No operator or anything. Right. So everything this this George was trying to do wasn't working. Yeah, he's trying like crazy to save his kids and bleeding and cutting cold and barefooted and nothing's working for him. Can't find his ladder. Water is frozen and the truck won't crank. It's just a sad situation. Yeah. I don't mean to be laughing, this, but man. I mean, what can you do? I mean, it's, everything was going against them. They could not do anything. So frustrated, the six solders who escaped the fire had no choice, Dale, but to watch their house burn down and collapse over the next 45 minutes. Man, that was a quick fire. Yeah. Burned the whole house down in 45 minutes. And they even assumed that the other five children had perished in the blaze. I mean, that's what they were thinking. At this time, they were standing out there watching their house burn down, thinking... Them babies is burning alive. They're burning alive. Mm. All right. The fire department... They were on low manpower due to the war and relying on individual firefighters to call each other. This was, I guess, was kind of like a phone tree type thing. Right. Yeah. They didn't even respond till the next morning. This The fire department was two miles away, Dale. Two miles away. <clears throat> yeah, it's crazy. And it took them like six hours to get there. Six, six hours, six to seven hours yeah. later to get to the house. Yeah, that's... Well, plus the chief also said that he couldn't even drive the truck. So what's up with that? Why had to wait yeah. for somebody else to bring the truck? I think he said he didn't know how to drive the truck. <laughs> so why is he chief? Yeah. This is telling you how probably how rural this area was. Yeah. All right. He probably had the barn that the truck would fit in so he gets to be chief. I guess. <laughs> oh, oh. Uh, that's crazy, man. Oh, sad, sad, sad. The firefighters, one of, one of them was Jenny's brother. 
He, I mean, he couldn't do little but just look through the ashes that were the, left in the solder's basement. Everything had burned and collapsed in the basement, Dale. And by 10 that morning, 10 a.m. that morning, the fire chief, Morris, he even told the solders they had not found any bones. Not a one. No, no bones were found. The fire chief, Morris, told George Sodder to leave the site undisturbed. Don't mess with it. Because they were still going to try to conduct a more thorough investigation. But Dale, after four days, him and Jenny couldn't take it anymore. They could not bear the site anymore. So George bulldozed five feet of dirt over the site with the intention of converting it to a memorial garden for his lost children. Maybe have a little rose garden there or something. Yeah. But didn't they tell him it probably burned so hot that it burned up the bones and everything, which is a little piece of Yeah. Well. I don't know. Yeah, but only burning for 45 minutes. You know, even Jenny, she went to funeral homes and crematoriums and investigated about, you know, how long it would take to cremate someone. Yeah, for that to happen. Yeah, and we're talking a couple thousand degrees over, you know, a couple hours. Yeah, I think, what, 2,000 degrees for two hours or something at least, and they only had 45 minutes max. Yeah. And nowhere near that hot, I wouldn't think. And even at the, you know, 2,000 degrees, there would still be bone left, plenty of bone left. Yeah, pieces. Yeah, but there was nothing left. <laughs> they, you know, they sifted through and didn't find anything. After George bulldozed over the site for their memorial garden the local coroner convened an inquest the next day which held that the fire was an accident caused by faulty wiring among the jurors was the man who had threatened george that his house would be burned down and his children destroyed so this is the insurance salesman this was the insurance salesman <laughs> he was, yeah he was part of the juror that concluded that this this house burned down from faulty wiring. How strange is that? Yeah, this is just, I don't know, man. I ain't buying none of this. And he, yeah, he told him his house would be burned down and his children destroyed in retribution for his anti-Mussolini remarks. Looks like that's your guy right there. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, come on, really? All right. Death certificates for the five children were issued on December the 30th. The local newspaper contradicted itself, stating that all the bodies had been found, but then later, in the same story, saying that only part of one body was re- recovered. George and Jenny Sodder were too grief-stricken to attend the funeral on January the 2nd, although their f- surviving children did. So they, they, didn't even, they weren't even able to go to the funeral. They were just so torn up. I can see that. Oh, yeah. I cannot, I cannot, deal, I cannot imagine, man. Mm, five. And, you know, the only thing they could do at this moment in their life was try to rebuild something in their lives. You know, you have to you have to keep going. You have to. But as they were rebuilding their lives, the, start, the Sodders started to question all the official findings about the fire. They wondered why. If it had been caused by an electrical problem, the family's Christmas lights had remained on throughout the fire's early stages. Yeah, that's kind of fishy too. I'm telling you. You know, I don't know how how good a wiring was back in 1945. You know, if there's a electrical fire, would you'd think that it was shorted out the lights? You would think so. Kicked everything. Well, I don't know about that breaker system how it was. But yeah, you would think it would all go down. I'm pretty sure they had fuse boxes back in. But I'm, they would probably blown some fuses, and the lights wouldn't have been on. So. You know, that's very, very fishy to me. Yeah, smoked up house burning down the Christmas lights on would be kind of eerie. And then they'll get this. They found the ladder that was missing them from the side of the house. And it was at the bottom of an embankment 75 feet away. And they always they always kept this ladder next to the house. Yeah, leaned up against the house. Yeah. So that's, yeah, that's, that's very fishy. A telephone repairman told the Sodders that the house phone line had not been burned in the fire, as they initially thought, but it was cut by someone who had been willing and able to climb a 14-foot pole and reach two feet away to do it. Well, so, there you go, and there's where your phone don't work. Yeah. So the ladder's missing and the phone line's cut. This happened to be 14 feet up. 
Yeah. So I think somebody might have barred the ladder and cut the wire and ditched the ladder. Very, very possible. Mm. Just throwed it down the embankment and Run. went on. All right. There was also a man who the neighbors had seen stealing a block and tackle from the property of George. And it was sometime about around the time the fire was identified and he was arrested. And he admitted to the theft and he claimed he had been the one who had cut the phone line thinking it was a power line but denied having anything to do with fire. So why, why would he cut the power line? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't even know who this guy was. That I've never found any any more mention of him. So apparently they didn't even question this guy. There's no record of identifying him at all. And why? Yeah, why would he want to cut the lines? I don't know, but I'd be thinking. And cut, why did he cut, need, cutting the power lines? And why did he? Good. Why did he need this block and tackle? Right, it's that, never been explained. No, that's kind of a relevant detail, I think. But yeah, I don't know. Yeah. But Jenny Sauter was said, she said in 1968 that if he had cut the power line, she and her family, along with her four children, would have never been able to make it out of the house. So I'm guessing the lights worked when they were trying to get out then. So she must have turned the light on to try to get out of the house. Otherwise, that would, she wouldn't have to say that. Yep. That's it. So if he cut the power line, would it not have killed him? <laughs> That's what I'm thinking. Yeah, I mean, they, they, you're looking at a lot of... A lot of voltage going through them lines. Oh, oh that's just yeah. the way I think, I guess. Yeah. So there's there's a lot of fishy explanations for different things. This is in a this strange, incident. strange story. All right. Jenny also had trouble accepting Fire Chief Morris's belief that all traces of the children body, children's bodies had been burned in the fire. Yeah, I don't believe that either. Many of the household appliances had been found, still recognizable in the ash along with fragments of the tin roof. Yeah, so the tin and the, the metal appliances, they made it, but the bones was completely dust. And she also commented on a, an article she had read one time about a similar house fire about the same time that it killed a family of seven and skeletal remains were found of all the victims, and this house burned for a longer period of time. Yeah. And Dale, she also, Jenny also experimented with burning small piles of animal bones. I mean, she was doing everything to find out what happened to her kids. She would see how long they would last in a fire. She always had bones left. Yeah, she always had bones left. All right, let's talk about the solder's truck. You know, both his trucks wouldn't start. He believed they were tampered with perhaps by the same man who stole the block and tackle and cut the phone line. However, one of his sons, one of his sons-in-law told the Charleston Gazette in 2013 that he had come to believe that Sauter and his sons might have, in their haste, you know, to start the trucks flooding the engines. That's possible, but both of them? Both of them, yeah. <laughs> Come on. Yeah. I don't, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, he had experience with these trucks. I wonder if the trucks worked the next day. I've never heard. I Me mean, neither. It's like, I'm like, because if it was just flooded, then later they would just start up. Yeah. You know, the ladder being gone, block and tackle being stolen, who's to say somebody didn't tamper with the trucks? Oh, yeah. That makes more sense than flooded to me. Yeah, cutting phone lines. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of stuff around this property that were that was messed with. But I'd like to know if he had to take them to get them fixed. <laughs> Yeah, I've never heard anything on that either. I got questions. All right, go ahead. I was just wondering, did anybody ever go and check at the cow pen or the chicken pen to see if the kids ever actually made it out there to get that done or not? Dale, I've never heard anything on that, on the, if they'd done their chores that Yeah, night. not necessarily to make sure the chickens got food, but just to see if they ever actually made it there or if they, whatever happened to them happened to them before that happened. Yeah. Does that make sense? No, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. You know, they would they would be evidence of them being there, you know, you know, like a like a bucket moved or footprints. Right. Some some kind of evidence of them being out there wherever they kept their chickens and yeah, had the cows in the pen or whatever. Yeah. In the barn, wherever they was going to put them up at. Yeah. Some accounts have suggested that the wrong number Jenny received 
might also have been connected to the fire and disappearance of the children. And some investigators later located the woman who had made the call. She confirmed that it had been a wrong number on her part. That's so, another fishy. Yeah. I'm just seeing make sure that everybody was home yeah. before we cut the phone line and set the house on fire. Yeah, that is that's just too coincidental. Yeah, I agree. All right. I ain't buying that. All right, Dale. We're getting into springtime of the next year after all this has happened. And the Sodders, as they said they would, they planted flowers. And Here the, comes that rose garden. Yeah, they <laughs> planting flowers and the bulldozed, where they bulldozed over the house. Jenny tended to it carefully for the rest of her life. She always planted flowers out there in, in memory of her kids. And further developments in early 1946 reinforced that the family's belief that the children they were memorializing might in fact somewhere might be alive possible yeah there was evidence that supported their belief that the fire had not started in the electrical system but was instead set deliberately the driver of a bus that passed through Fayetteville late christmas eve said he had seen someone throwing balls of fire at the house and a few months later when the snow had melted sylvia found a small hard dark green rubber-like object in the brush nearby and george's account you know of the loud thump on well george's wife account of the large thump on the roof and that it might be some kind of bomb or something some kind of incendiary device. yeah that set the house on fire that's possible i wonder why this guy didn't say something before a couple months later the yeah bus, the bus driver exactly other witnesses have claimed to have seen the children themselves. One woman who had been watching the fire from a roadside had seen someone peering out of the passenger car while the house was burning. Another woman at a rest stop between Fayetteville and Charleston said she had served them breakfast the next morning and noted the presence of a car with a Florida license plate at the rest stop. It's uh, kind of weird there. The, the Sodders hired a private investigator named C.C. Tinsley. And he began to look in this case. And Dale, he turned up a lot, of, a lot of crazy stuff. He learned that the insurance salesman, like we said, had threatened him with the fire the year before over George's remark about Mussolini, had been on the coroner's jury that ruled the fire an accident and told this to the Sodders. He also learned of rumors around Fayetteville that despite his report to the Sodders that no remains had been found in the ashes. Morris had found a heart, which he later packed into a metal box and buried it secretly. Right. <laughs> Wait, question. If this lady who had uh, claimed that she saw some of the children peering out of the car while watching the fire, why didn't she say something? If she's there on the side of the road watching the fire burn and the car drives by, she sees some of them kids. And she knows these people up here are flipping out because their kids are burning in the house. You'd think she had went up there and said something, but this is all coming later, I know. But you know, maybe she didn't, you know, she saw, maybe if she saw the kids, she thought they were safe in the car. And yeah, I don't know. Did she know that the family was freaking out over the kids being in the house? Yeah, that's true. They don't say she was right at their house, just as she was there watching the fire. Okay. You know, I was just wondering. I'd have to put myself in a situation if I noticed my neighbor's house on fire and would I be too fascinated with the fire to notice more details about somebody in the car? I don't know. Right. When it don't really say how long it was before this information come out. Yeah, and you, you know, when you have time to sit back and think about the whole situation, you you, you analyze all this stuff right. too. Like, damn, that was some kids in that car. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. We get we we'll get back to this heart. heart in the, yeah, the heart in the box. The heart in the box. Why? Why would you bury a heart in a box? Even if you found a heart, why? Who who just has a heart? I mean, but we're we're gonna we're gonna talk about this, but and 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 pack it into a metal box. If you found it in the ashes. <laughs> yeah. All right. This fire chief Morris. Yeah, I guess the whole body burned up, but the heart. Yeah, <laughs> he. You know, this fire chief apparently confessed to a local minister, and who confirmed it to George Sodder, 
and Sauter and Tinsley went to Morris and confronted him with his news, and he agreed to show him where he had buried it, this box with a heart in it, and they dug it up. They took the box to a local funeral director. Right. And who, after examining it, told him that it was a beef liver. No. A beef liver. That ain't a heart. No. It's a very fresh beef liver. Yeah. It's never been exposed to fire. Yeah, he didn't even char it. He didn't even try. And, this dude. <laughs> and, and to listen to this right here, Dale, to make this even more fishy, Morris said that he buried this box so that the solders would find it and be satisfied that the children had indeed died in that fire. It yeah. was some kind of remains of them. How stupid does he think they are? Okay, if I'm dying in the fire, I'm going to rip my heart out and put it in this box. So I'm going to bury it. Then I'm going to go back in the house and so all my bones burn away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Come on, man. Yeah, this he, is the guy that can't drive the fire truck, right? This is the guy that cannot drive the fire truck. Okay. So this, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to lay this out here. To me, this fire chief, Morris, is the, is the fishiest guy on the planet. He is, the, he is the sketchiest guy ever. Him and the insurance guy, they, they got something going on. Yeah. There's, especially with George's views toward Mussolini. I think they, they got something against him. In 1949, George didn't wait for reports of recitings to come in. Sometimes he made them themselves. After seeing a girl in a magazine, she was a ballet dancer in New York, and she favored one of his missing daughters. He drove all the way to New York to be able to see this girl, see if it was his daughter. And the family there wouldn't even talk to him. Well, you know, somebody rolls up in the yard going, I want to see your daughter and think it's mine. Let me see her, let me see her. You're going, that's a creepy guy. You got to get out of here. Yeah. They even wrote uh, letters to the FBI, and they even got a personal response from J. Edgar Hoover. He said, although I would like to be of service, the matter related appears to be of local character and does not come within the investigation of, and jurisdiction of the Bureau. Now, is that possible today? If they want to investigate something, only, will they do it or do they have I, to be I, invited? Only if uh, there's proof that children are taken across state line. Okay. The FBI get involved. If there is proof that they've crossed state line. So I don't know about the rules back in 1940. Right. I don't know. But uh, J. Edgar Hoover's response was that he would. If they asked him to come help. Yeah, that the local authorities requested the Bureau's assistance. And guess what? They turned him down. They didn't want help. They didn't want the FBI in there. I'm yeah. down. I just don't. They should come just because of that. This has got to be the most yeah. sideways, fishiest story. Mm-hmm. Whoa, man. All right. This would be a Don Knotts movie. Pretty much. Now, later in 1949, in August of 1949, George was able to persuade Oscar Hunter. He was a pathologist from Washington, D.C. He came in to supervise a new search through the dirt at the house site. And Dale, they done a extensive, extensive search through the all the remaining everything through the rubble. Yeah, they they searched everything. They found artifacts, including a dictionary that belonged to one of the children. Some coins were found. Several small bone fragments were unearthed, and they were determined to be human vertebrae. So that's one of those unburnable dictionaries. Yeah. Okay. Let's yeah. <laughs> they sent. These vertebrae to a specialist at the Smithsonian Institute. And I guess at that time, that was the, well, I mean, they are still the leading oh, yeah. authority. But, you know, at that time, they were they were the leading authority on anything, anything like that. Marshall T. Newman. Yeah. Specialist. Was, he was a specialist. And they were, con- they were confirmed to be lumbar vertebrae, all from the same person. And since transverse recesses are fused, the age of the individual at death should have been 16 or 17 years old. Newman also reported the top limit of the age should be about 22 since the centra, which normally fuse at 23, are still unfused. And given this range, it is not 
very likely that these bones were from any of the five missing yes. children. It doesn't match any of ours. Any of our victims. Yeah. They didn't come. And the oldest one that was missing was 14. So we found a dictionary, some coins, and some bones of somebody that is not in the house. Yeah, unless Maurice, you know, him being 14, was very mature for his age, they didn't belong to anybody that burned up in that fire, if they burned up at all. And also, Newman also said that the bones showed no sign of exposure to flame. So not only are they not bones from our people, they're not burnt bones. And they are thinking that these vertebrae bones came from where George had pulled field dirt to cover in the basement. Wherever he got his dirt from, the bone was there. Wow. I wonder if they ever went back there to see if they could find more of the skeletons. Yeah, I don't know. That's one of these mysteries about this case, you know, from nineteen late 1940s. It's just so much missing from it. It'd be nice to know if they went back there and excavated that where he came, got those bones from. Yeah. Or that field dirt. The investigation and his findings attracted national attention, Dale. This, I mean, it became a big story. And two Virginia legislative hearings were held in 1950. And Governor Oki L. Patterson and State Police Superintendent W.E. Burchett told the Sodders the case was hopeless. And they closed it at state level. And the FBI decided it had jurisdiction as possible interstate kidnapping, but dropped the case after two years following the fruitless leads. Mm. So, they so they finally did get involved. but Yeah, but... Only looking for the kids, not investigating what's going on around the house. Yeah, but, you know, but they dropped the case. You know, right. They didn't have nothing, they had nothing to go on. Whoever in Fayetteville was covering this up, they done. They covered their tracks. Yeah, yeah. And they were told it was they, hopeless. They were messy. They were messy with it, but they covered their tracks. The Sodders, you know, they they spent their whole life. They didn't give up hope. I mean, they published flyers with pictures of the children, offering reward. And it started out at five thousand, and it soon doubled to ten thousand for any information. That, and like we said at the beginning of this episode, they put up that billboard, and it stayed on Route sixteen. Route sixty. Route 60 for almost 40 years. Crazy. But the the billboard is gone now. It, it's gone. Oh, today it's Route 16. You're right. Yeah. And we will post uh, pictures of this billboard and other photos of this episode on our social media platforms. George Sauter followed up all kinds of leads, Dale, in person. He traveled to the areas where tips came from. He just wouldn't, he wouldn't sit back and take phone calls. He would get up and go. And a woman in St. Louis claimed Martha was being held in a convent. And a bar patron in Texas claimed to have overheard two people making incriminating statements about a fire that happened on Christmas Eve in West Virginia some years before. None proved significant. When George heard this later, that the relative of Jenny's in Florida had children that looked similar to his, the relative had to prove the children were his own before George was satisfied. Well, so he's driven to New York and almost to Mexico and Texas and St. Louis and Florida. He was really looking for his kids. Yeah. All right, in 1967, George went to Houston to investigate another tip. A woman there had written to the family saying that Louis Sauter had revealed his true identity to her one night after having too much to drink. She believed that he and Maurice were both living in Texas somewhere, but Sauter and his son-in-law, Grover Paxton, unable to speak to her. Police were unable to help them find the men who she indicated, but they denied being the missing sons. Paxton said years later that doubts about the denial, about that denial lingered in Sauter's mind for the rest of his life. So... But why would they lie to him if they were really... Yeah, I mean, all these years later, why would somebody come up and say, hey, I'm a missing solder child? And when your dad rolls up, you go, yeah, I'm not him. Yeah. It just <laughs> makes you wonder if these if they, they were being threatened in some way. Right. If the Sicilian Mafia did get a hold of them and were threatening them. Another letter they received that year brought the Sodders what they believed was most, most credible evidence that the least son, Lewis, was still alive. One day, Jenny found in the mail a letter addressed to her postmarked Central City, Kentucky, with no return address. 
Inside was a picture of a young man around 30 with pictures strongly resembling Lewis, who would have been in his 30s if he had survived. And on the back, this postcard was written, Lewis Sodder, I love Brother Frankie, Little Boys, A90132 or 35. So, but they didn't have a Brother Frankie at all. No. So I don't know where that came from. I don't know if it was another hoax or some kind of code or what. Yeah. So, yeah. That's why they hired another detective to go check it out, didn't they? Yeah. And this detective took the money and they never heard from him again. Yeah. So, yeah, he didn't, he never did return with anything. Or somebody took him out while he's looking up. Very true. All right. George died in 1969. Jenny and her surviving children, except John, who never talked about the night of the fire, except to say that the family should accept it and get on with their lives. They continued to seek answers to their questions about the missing children's fate. So after George's death, Jenny stayed in the family home, putting up fences around it and adding additional rooms. Dale, for the rest of her life, she wore black in mourning. Mm. That, that's just crazy, man. I, and intended to the garden at the site of the former house. And after her death in 1989, the family took the weathered, worn billboard down. So I guess it's just their way of trying to move on in some way or another. So she lived 20 years later than George. They're mourning herself to death. Yeah, pretty much. The surviving Sauter children joined their own children and they continue to this day to publicize the case and investigating leads. They, along with older Fayetteville residents, have theorized that the Cecilia Mafia was trying to extort money from George, and the children may have been taken by someone who knew about the planned arson, and they would be safe if they left the house. And they, they could have been, there have been rumors they were possibly taken back to Italy. Yeah, but why wouldn't they get, well, I don't know. You never know. I was going to say, why, when they get back in touch with their parents after years, because they're all old enough, it wasn't like... They, yeah, they were old enough to know. It wasn't they, like they didn't know where they were, you know, like toddlers or something, you know, just after so long. Mm-hmm. That's right. Strange. Yeah, it makes you wonder, too, if they avoided contact in order to keep them from har- being harmed. Right. All right. Okay, you know, as of 2015, I mean, this is recent. This is, just, you know, a few years ago. Sylvia Sauter Paxton... The youngest in the family is the only one still alive. She was the one that was two during the fire, right? Two during the fire. Right. You know, she doesn't have much memory of it, but, you know, she says, I was the last one of the kids to leave home. And she and her father often stayed up late talking about what might have happened. I experienced their grief for a long time. She still believes their siblings, her siblings are still alive. And she still publicizes this case. Even her children publicize this case. So, Dale, you know, this is, a, this is a really strange story. This is way out there. Yeah. There's so much. I don't even know. I guess what gets me in the whole, the crux of the whole thing is the fire chief and the insurance salesman. Yeah. You know, they, they are two sketchy individuals, man. I can't believe that anybody in that town would believe any of that. Yeah. I don't know what happened to the kids. I don't I don't think they burned up in the house. I, I don't think they were there. I still want to know if they fed the chickens. You know, and <laughs> something, too, I never heard anything. You know, you got five children burning up in the house. You'd think a human flesh burning would smell. Yeah. You know, there was no account of that at all. No, nobody looking out the window. Nobody screaming out the window. No yelling. No, no, nothing. Yeah, that makes you wonder. Yeah, that's why I don't. I don't believe they were in the house. No, I don't. I don't believe they were in the house either. All right, Dale, you ready to wind this up? Yeah, I think so. I think this is about all we got to say about this. This is a pretty strange episode. I don't know really what to think. It's so much. I don't know. I don't want to say backstabbing. It's just, just. I don't even know. Yes. When I first heard this story several a lot years. of sketchiness that's what i'm looking yeah for. i heard this story several years ago and i was captivated by it i was like wow why what happened to these children you know there's nothing 
been found of them in all this time. Yeah, Nothing. and it's like uh, none of the the authorities in the town even really halfway cared about what happened here. Nobody checked into it. The one guy they caught for stealing the block and tackle, he admitted to stealing it, and that was the end of that. Didn't ask him about the power line or the phone line or the ladder or, or the trucks. Or if the trucks, I'd like to know if the trucks, if what he had to do to them to get them running again. There's a lot of little detail stuff like that that kind of bugs me. Like, I still want to know if they went to the, to the cows and the chickens just because if they went out there or if they never made it out or if they went out there and somebody grabbed them when they went outside. True. Maybe that's why the yeah. windows are still open and the lights were still on. The older daughter had fell asleep because she had been at work all day on the couch, and the other kids went out there to do their chores, and somebody, I don't know. It was just a lot of unanswered questions, basically. Yeah, and this, this being Christmas Eve, too, probably a very easy time. They were Their guard was down. You know, they were celebrating the holidays. Yeah. You know, they, were, they weren't thinking about fire or anything like that. Or, I mean, no, I mean, you know, you never no. think about fire, but you don't, you don't, you got your mind on definitely on other things. Yeah. And we want all of our listeners to weigh in on this. Please tell us what you think happened. Weigh in on it. Go to our Facebook page. Go to our Instagram. We're going to post pictures and all that good stuff. Tell us what you think. Leave us a comment, suggestion. And also, we want to give a big shout-out to one of our listeners, Trevor Pearson. Hey, Trevor. Trevor races cars, and he is a big fan. We got you a shirt on the way. We got you some stickers, bud. And we hear you got an upcoming race coming up. We wish you luck there, bud. Pull over the first place for the crack house. That's right, man. All right. We're going to get out of here. We want everyone to be safe, be careful, and always be aware of your surroundings. Because the next episode could be about you. This is the Crack Crack House Chronicles. Chronicles.